Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Hey, welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode three, the holiday edition, being recorded on Tuesday, November 24th, just two days before Thanksgiving. How are you doing tonight, Scott? I'm good. Happy Thanksgiving to you and all of our listeners. I know we've both been really busy with e-commerce holiday uh, preparations, but some portion of the population, this was square IPO week rather than holiday week. Did you uh, get in on the IPO, Scott? I did. I was, it was interesting. I had uh, one of our customers has four Square accounts, and the way they did it is they did kind of a it used to be called friend and family round. Uh, now they call it directed shares because I don't know if the SEC doesn't like the sound of friend and family. I guess. And um, he gave me one of his one-time use codes, so I want to thank him for that. And I was able to get in on the IPO. It was a I always like seeing how these bigger IPOs do that process and manage it, and um, it was very nice. It was it was totally automated. You had to work through this one firm I had never heard of before. the The trick was that once they priced it, because they priced so low behind below the range. If you recall, the range was I think twelve to fourteen, and they priced at nine. You had a one hour window uh, within which you could you had to go in and like you know very recertify that you were interested in the IPO. And I, it just so happened that I was online during that hour. Uh, I reconfirmed, and unfortunately, my friend that had the other three, he had fallen asleep or something, and uh, he missed it. So, oh, <laughs> so no. I feel a little bad for my friend that he did not get to partake in the IPO. But but I did, and I thought the process was was pretty smooth. Actually, it was it was really well done, and it was good to see Jack Dorsey down there, uh, you know, uh, on the Nasdaq and and quote unquote ringing the bell and all that cool stuff. It's always always neat to see these things when they go off. I particularly like that seconds before they rang the bell, he was out on the steps helping vendors sell stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was cute. Yeah. I believe everything about that story, Scott, except the part that it was lucky that you happened to be on the internet. My <laughs> by my math, you had a twenty three out of twenty four uh chance of being on the internet the hour that that happened. Yeah, sometimes uh being an internet night owl pays it actually does pay. Uh, quite literally. Well, congratulations on that. Turning back to holiday, today was Comscore's State of the U.S. Online uh, Retail Economy um, report. And uh, I, I try to follow that pretty carefully. Did you catch it this this quarter, I should say? Yeah, we. Um, so I, I know many of the Wall Street analysts, and um, they previewed it Monday and Wednesday with Goldman Sachs and I think Wells Fargo. I, I forget who they previewed it with. So um, had the chance to listen to um, Andy kind of give the whole spiel twice, which is good because it was pretty dense this year. So I, 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 it helped to kind of hear it a couple times. Um, some of the highlights I took away for it from it. So they're forecasting 13 to 15% year-over-year growth. Uh, and in last episode, you and I talked about, just to refresh folks, nrfshop.org is kind of on the low side at 8%. Uh, and then Forrester is, uh, remind me, they were 10%, is that right, or 11? I think 11. 11, yep. So 
it, it's always interesting to see Comscore come in a little high. Now, some of these things are, are little apples and oranges. Uh, I always like the Comscore because of what's in and what's not in there. Comscore tends to take out travel, grocery, tickets, and some of those kinds of things that, that do skew the numbers. So I, I thought that was interesting. So we've got, in my memory, for at least the last four years, the broadest range of possible holiday outcomes from 8 to 15%. That's a, that's a pretty big range, you know, a, a doubling effectively in there. Um, they talked about mobile shopping reaching 16%, which would be a new high watermark of share uh, in the fourth quarter. Um, and that causes mobile commerce to be growing at over 70% which I think most retailers would agree with. And that's transactional, not just traffic. And then they had a, one of the most interesting charts was kind of a scatter diagram that was uh, on one axis that showed the uh, they did a lot of um, surveys of app usage uh, and who's using what apps and and also which ones are on the home screen. So there's all these studies out there that show you know, the average consumer has something like 110, 120 apps, but they only actively use 10 or 20, and those tend to live on the home screen. So I thought it was really interesting. They did a, uh, a really interesting scatter plot diagram, and way over on the right in the upper hand quadrant was Amazon, and then all the other retailers were clustered at the bottom. And Amazon is just kind of owning mobile was one of my takeaways. They have, uh, of 28% of the phone users, 14% had Amazon on the home screen. All the other retailers were kind of sub 8% kind of penetration there. And another way they asked the question was, uh, of the people that have downloaded an e-commerce app, how many of them is Amazon the only e-commerce app? And 35% of the surveyed people said that Amazon was their only e-commerce app. So I thought that was really interesting and just kind of more evidence that I'm, I'm kind of a contrarian, I, I guess. You and I talked about have talked about this uh, a lot about the conversion rates of smartphone. I think they're so low because I think Amazon is just gobbling all that up. I don't think it's an attribution problem or uh, you know necessarily a, a pure conversion problem. I think uh, it ends up being an Amazon problem. And then the last takeaway for me was, uh, you know, for the first time, I think they've they've said that all 15 days after Cyber Monday. Um, right up until kind of late December, there will be over a billion dollar days. Uh, so that that's kind of an, you know the fifteen billion dollar days of of e commerce is kind of where we are now, which, which is interesting and another kind of high water mark for e commerce. There clearly is a new holiday uh, carol we need to be writing about that. Yeah, the fifteen billion dollar days of Christmas. All right, next uh, episode we will. You can. Uh, I'll write it. You sing it. We'll have to take that one offline. Okay. Yeah, so I did get to catch the presentation today, and so I do want to highlight that my insights are two days less insightful than yours were. One of the things I always find interesting about their quarterly reports is the percentage of all orders that were with free shipping, right? So obviously free shipping is a huge deal in e-commerce, and particularly around the holiday time, I think merchants are really trying to dial in the exact right ratio of free shipping to not give away margin, but incentivize all those sales. And coming into holiday, Q3, 69% of all sales were with free shipping. Um, so that's the highest quarter we've ever seen. And it, it fundamentally means you need to have a free shipping model to succeed at e-commerce. Now, they do turn that down a little bit in Q4. So I think we see merchants playing with the dials a little bit. And so Q4 may not be all the way up to that 69% when everything's all said and done, but that's... That's a pretty high starting point, which is going to be an interesting challenge. And of course, we've already seen that one of the biggest e-commerce sites, Walmart, has kind of opted out of the whole thing and said, hey, we're going to stick with our $50 free shipping threshold for the entire holiday period, which is a pretty interesting counter tactic to try this year. I also get excited for a lot of my friends in the apparel space. 
the apparel category was interesting in that it was both one of the strongest growth categories on the Comscore categories and also the second largest. So, you know, intuitively, the categories that aren't huge in e-commerce tend to be the ones that are growing the fastest. And the, and I, it, it's interesting to me that apparel is this outlier that both is the second most popular category online and still one of the categories that's growing at over 15%. That somewhat flies in the face of a lot of retailers that are reporting soft soft sales this quarter, but like uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that, that all plays out. And then going to... The mobile stuff that you highlighted, one of the interesting things to me there is that the majority of top retailers that are doing well in mobile are primarily doing well through their mobile app. And more than 50% of all the revenue is coming from their mobile app. And Home Depot and Best Buy were the two outliers in that report. They were the two retailers that had the majority of their, their revenue coming from the mobile web. Um, and there, there are a couple takeaways from me on that. Number one, you know, I think people look at the Comscore data and it's easy to look at it on the surface and say, oh my gosh, apps are much more profitable than the mobile web and we ought to be investing in a mobile app. But I think that next slide that you mentioned that, you know, gosh, it's really hard to be one of the mobile apps that are installed on consumers' phones. And I think in the Comscore data, more than 51% of all mobile users have three or less retail apps on their phone. And two of those three are extremely likely to be Amazon and Walmart. So the rest of the world, the rest of the retail world is really competing for one slot on more than half of the phones out there. And so part of me thinks the reason that Home Depot and Best Buy are uh, lower in terms of uh, mobile app revenue is they just haven't been as successful as Amazon and Walmart and to a lesser degree Target in getting the, the mobile app installed. The one really funny takeaway is they have this great graph showing the audience for each retailer's mobile app. And there's this huge, it starts with Target being uh, one of the most popular retail apps. And that's largely because for a long time, they've had this cartwheel app, which has been a, a huge success. But they showed in 2012 a huge spike from Walmart of their mobile app, and it now has more users than Target. And the spike perfectly coincides for when Walmart launched this new feature called Savings Catcher. So I think the Savings Catcher is a really clever feature. It gives a bunch of benefits to Walmart, but one of them clearly was it incentivized a ton of people to download that app, and now that's paying dividends for them in terms of mobile revenue. It's kind of funny to me because... It kind of almost plays on people not understanding technology, right? Because if I'm not mistaken with that app, you have to kind of take out your paper receipt and scan it into the app, right? Uh, and Walmart already has all that data. I mean, they, they digitally print it out. So you kind of go, you know, digital to analog to digital. And then they probably, do they OCR it again? And, or is there like a QR code? No, there's just, there's a barcode at the bottom. But it's just kind of funny that you know they they create a reason for you to scan the thing, and they really shouldn't in a computer science esque. At least my understanding is there you really shouldn't have to scan that thing. You would think you would know, but I have to tell you that that is yet another of the really clever things about Savings Catcher because if you're if you're Walmart, you still have a high percentage of transactions that are with cash, and so you actually have this this. Uh, Omnichannel attribution problem that, you know, people pre-shopped on your website and then they bought something in the store and paid with cash and you have no way to know that those, all the, that digital marketing influenced that purchase. So when that consumer pulls out their, their savings catcher app and scan that receipt that they paid cash for, 
that allows them to to link up those purchases with your uh, cookie in your online profile. Ah, I just thought it was a reason to get me to download the app, and and uh, they already knew through the credit card, but that's a good point. I hadn't thought about the cash. Something like over 50% of their folks are cash, right? Exactly. 30% of their customers are unbanked, so they generally don't have a credit card. So I thought that was clever. And then one just anecdotal thing that I thought was fascinating that I myself didn't know is Comscore was talking about the growth of, of Cyber Monday. And of course, there's this other Monday, the, the second Monday in December that I think eBay coined as Green Monday a, a number of years ago. And if Comscore is to be believed, they're saying that, hey, when uh, Cyber Monday was first launched in 2005, and it was described as the biggest shopping day of the year, that actually wasn't true from 2005 through 2008. So that was, you know, the the big shopping day that got dubbed and created uh, by by shop.org. But in point of fact, that second Monday in December was the biggest online shopping day until 2009 when Cyber Monday overtook it. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Fun historical fact. And then I guess the one thing I would say, I find the Comscore data really helpful and useful. There is a challenge with all of these data sources. They're all obviously imperfect and they have to have some specific methodology to sort of uncover this consumer behavior. And Comscore's particular methodology is that they have a panel of two, th- two million users. And the main way they get data from that panel is that those users have installed a plugin on their browser that lets Comscore see all of their, sh- all of their online behavior. And then they, they have a secondary data source which is they have a bunch of websites that are willing to share their analytics with Comscore. But the the problem with that is mobile browsers don't generally support plugins, and certainly none of them support a Comscore plugin. And so historically, Comscore has only seen desktop users, and they, they now have instrumented a small number of users with special mobile phones that can follow your, your mobile behavior, but they're, they're, they frankly aren't telling people how big that panel is. And usually when they, they don't tell you, that tells me that it's a pretty small panel. And so, you know, one of the things that I always take with a grain of salt, uh, with Comscore is their insight into mobile behavior. And it drives me particularly nuts. They lump tablets and smartphones together largely because they have the same browser plug-in problem with both of those user bases. But as we know from almost every other data set, tablet behavior tends to be much different than mobile and, frankly, is much more similar to desktop behavior than it is to smartphone behavior. Yeah. But so going from that to a much more trustworthy data source, uh, I did notice that the Channel Advisor same-store sales data is out for the third week in November. Uh, what, what can we learn from that? Yeah, and just as a quick uh, refresher, we have about 3,000 customers. We look at about $6 billion worth of transactional data. So that's that's where we're looking at this. And we don't really look at the, we, we have the absolute volume, but we think it's more relevant to kind of look at the year-over-year trends because that strips out uh, you know seasonality and those kinds of things. Um, the big thing this year is uh, mobile, which uh, in, in this one I'm putting smartphone and tablet there just as a, an indicator, is around 58% of traffic. Uh, even smartphones are, are creeping up towards the the 50% mark uh, for everybody, which is interesting. Um, we definitely saw conversions uh, really kind of go up nicely from the second week in November. So just for example, desktop conversion rates were 3.5% in the second week of November. And then in the third week, they were 4.2%. So I always watch that as the indication that people have kind of selected what they're going to buy and now they're they're in purchase mode. So we definitely saw a really nice 
bump up there. We saw the same thing on tablet. It was previously 2.3% and then rose to 2.6%. Smartphone is still kind of just hanging in at kind of one and a half percentage kind of though on the conversion rate. So uh, it was interesting to see that that conversion rate pop on both desktop and tablet, but not smartphone. The other things, just kind of uh, the leaders, uh, when we look at the different e-commerce channels, uh, we have this bucket, which is other third-party marketplaces. Uh, it, it, it had a really nice kind of uh, growth rate of over 50%. Uh, Amazon is right in line with e-commerce at about 14%, and Google Shopping is is in the mid-20s. Some of the laggards, uh, eBay is, is really struggling. Um, it's not exactly clear what's going on there. Some of our larger electronics folks are, are just not um, seeing the the juice they saw last year. Uh, so I don't I don't know if that's because everyone wants a new iPhone this year or what's going on there, but there's definitely some pressure on electronics and, and some apparel. Auto parts continues to do well. It's kind of the has been the shining kind of example within eBay, uh, growing in line with e-commerce. Comparison traditional comparison shopping engines and AdWords are 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 growing quite a bit slower than e-commerce, and um, they each have their own thing. Traditional comparison shopping engines have been killed by Google and their SEO changes, uh, and then search has been killed by Google Shopping. So Google shopping slash product listing ads takes a lot of the real estate on the the page now uh, and is definitely cannibalizing AdWords. So that trend is kind of one we've been seeing all year and continues through the holiday. Uh, As we go into, this is an exciting time of year, I I call it the Cyber Five, which is those five days from Thanksgiving through Cyber Monday. Um, And I know we go into high data kind of... um, mode at channel advisor we'll, we'll start start looking at the data on an intraday basis um jason you and i have, have never had a chance to talk about it uh, so i'm kind of curious uh i know how you feel about Comscore. what other data do you watch as we get into holiday what are you going to be kind of you know keeping your eye on yeah everything i can get my hands on frankly because i do, i don't think there's a perfect data source and so in my mind the best picture emerges when you look at as many of those different sources as possible and you you try to understand what the methodology is and how their data is collected. But there are a bunch of good ones that come out this time of the year. One is Deloitte does this annual holiday survey. So they a little earlier this month came out with a 2015 version of that. And that has a lot of good insight in it about consumer behavior online and offline. And the the big takeaway from the report is, uh, in their estimation, 68% of all sales will be digitally influenced. So, you know, there's both the the depending on how you count the nine to twenty percent that'll actually happen online, but the majority of all those sales that happen in brick and mortar stores at cash registers were actually influenced by digital pre shopping, and so you know Deloitte is doing a good job of highlighting that that influence, which I think is very important. I I will say for that data source. You know, it shares a common flaw with a lot of the stuff that comes out in holidays. It's primarily based on interviewing consumers and asking them how they feel about different things and how they intend to shop. And the Deloitte one is one of the best ones. It's, I think it's over 10,000 people they talk to. But the reality is that to me, shopping is a 99% subconscious activity and we make all kinds of decisions based on influences that we don't ever realize. And then when someone surveys us and asks us what we will do or why we did something, you know, we, we're stuck giving them a rational answer when we really don't know. Um, and so, you know, my early days in shopper marketing, we, we used to put a skew on the middle row of the end cap and that skew always sells the best. And whenever you, you, you did exit interviews and ask customers why they bought that skew, they'll always tell you, because of some attribute of the product that particularly appealed to them. But 
we know through observation that like they picked it because it was in the middle row and right in their eye line. And so I, I, I always take those, those surveys with a grain of salt. And particularly when you're asking people to predict how they're going to behave, um, I, I, I put the least value in, in that type of data. So another one I really like is the Adobe holiday forecast. Uh, they, of course, have a big analytics platform that's used by a lot of e-commerce sites. And so they're anonymizing all that data and sharing their insights from, from the aggregate of all the Adobe analytics, what was formerly Omniture customers. And so couple interesting takeaways from there that are sort of distinct from the Comscore data. Uh, number one, they feel that, that this holiday spending is going to be much more concentrated on fewer products than we traditionally see. So they're saying that typically about 68 of all percent of all spending, um, happens on 1% of products. And that this holiday, it's going to be 76% of all spending on 1% of products. So we're, uh, if they're right, we're going to see a lot more concentration on fewer SKUs with their data set. They're now seeing that, that the majority of all traffic to e-commerce sites is, is mobile. They're saying 51%. Um, I think Comscore data showed that that happened a little earlier for them. They're forecasting 11%, uh, sales increase for the holidays. Um, so, Pretty much in line with, with, uh, NRF and Forrester. They, they do point out that, you know, holiday is going to represent about 22% of all sales for retailers. So that's obviously why it's so important. And then one thing that they really underscored in their data set is that we've really seen a flip flop of smartphones and tablets. So, you know, for a while, phones were, were getting some traffic and they were used for pre-shopping. The conversion rate on mobile really sucked. Like there's conflicting theories about that. And I think you and I share two of them, but the tablets were the good converting, fast growing category, like so much so that two years ago, I would have to have a lot of conversations with clients about making tablet specific versions of their site. And the, the Adobe make data makes it pretty clear that tablets have peaked and are now dropping and they're actually uh, losing share to desktop and to mobile their conversion rate is dropping and it, it really is clear that there was this like a uh, spike of tablet use and that now it seems to be you know falling back in line um to its its proportionate share based on on uh the market penetration of tablets and then i guess the the one big uh, interesting prediction to me is Adobe is saying that this year Cyber Monday will still be the biggest online shopping day, but they're predicting in 2016 that Black Friday will actually be a bigger online shopping day than Cyber Monday. Yeah. So, a couple other uh, benchmarks that I also look at, you know, I do look a lot at the Adobe one we just talked about and IBM, which has a, a competing analytics package called Core Metrics. And I like both of those because it's observed behavior rather than stated behavior. And so, you know, we're getting insight into what customers actually did. I guess the challenge with both of those is I think both of those products are losing some market share to Google. And so, you know, you have to take their data with a grain of salt because it's, you know, a, a small subset of all retailers that are using one of those, those two analytics products. I will say a really cool thing that IBM has done this year is they've launched this site called IBM Watson Trends. And they've, they've, uh, I'm not sure this is official, but they've basically rebranded core metrics to IBM analytics. And now it feels like they're rebranding IBM analytics to IBM Watson analytics. Um, and we'll, we'll put the link to this in the show notes, but the IBM Watson trend has two really interesting things. They 
use Watson to look at all social media and identify which products are trending for this holiday. And uh, Scott, you'll be really happy to know that the the Star Wars Legos are going to be a really fast mover this year. And the the other cool thing they've done is they've taken the core metrics data that they used to share as a static report, and they've made it a live real-time dashboard. So, you know, anyone can log on to to that website and you can see in real time what percentage of IBM customers traffic is coming from smartphones versus tablets, what the conversion rate is, what the cart abandonment rate is, what the bounce rate. And, you know, a lot of the typical e-commerce metrics you can watch happening in real time right on a website, even if you're not an IBM customer. So I think that's a cool data source for a lot of customers. We we have a similar live dashboard where we aggregate all of our clients and I find that really valuable. Um and so this year it's gonna be it's gonna be extra nice to also have have a, a snapshot of all the IBM Core Metrics customers. Google has done a cool thing in terms of benchmarks this year. They they've always had this really useful tool, Google Trends, which I recommend everyone use. Um, but this year they launched a special version for shopping um, and I think the URL is uh, shopping.thinkwithgoogle.com. And essentially what they've done is they've done really detailed trend analysis of, of uh, search activity for the top 4,000 products that are, that are searched on Google. And so you can go in and you can say, for example, how popular are Star Wars Legos versus Minecraft Legos? And again, the Star Wars Legos are uh, destroying Minecraft, although Minecraft had a good holiday season last year. So I find that tool to be pretty interesting if, if you happen to have some some queries that are in that top 4,000. And then there's a whole bunch of other vendors, uh, Kastura, Demandware, Monetate, that all share some really insightful data aggregating their subset of customers. And I, I find all those data sources really useful. Again, you have to take it with a grain of salt because you have to understand which customers are using those specific products. And, you know, for example, demandware skews much more towards apparel sites. And so their, so their data is similarly going to skew towards apparel sites. So I, uh, unfortunately track all of those data sources and, and, uh, try to find some common denominators and some insight amongst all of them. Do you think Black Friday will be bigger than Cyber Monday this year? Online, I don't. I I do think it's growing way faster. So I think the Adobe prediction is totally credible. Like obviously, it's it's growing from a smaller base, but all all five of the Cyber Five Cyber Monday is growing the slowest of those five. Yeah, and I do. I, I certainly think the days when you know people used to wait to go to work on Monday to use their boss's computer to to shop. Like no, nobody needs to do that anymore. Obviously, the the smartphones can shop quite capably from the dinner table on Thursday night. So it it does stand to reason that aggregating all the the shopping behavior around these these specific days is getting less relevant. Remember back when Akamai used to be like one of the only data sources and did a spinny globe, and you could kind of watch e-commerce happen and start in the UK and work its way to us. It was kind of, then, then, we, then we all realized it was kind of useless. <laughs> it's just kind of like, but visually it was totally cool. And man, you sure looked like an e-commerce expert. If you had that up on your screen. Oh yeah. Uh, during holiday. Um, I will say they still, like, I don't think they report a lot of interesting data, but they still have incredible market share. It's like, there's a lot more competition out there now. And it's, it's amazing how much market share they've been able to hang on to, but let's turn our attention to the, the really big player out there, Amazon. Some kind of exciting news uh, this week. I'm assuming uh, Jeff Bezos wasn't completely focused on holiday shopping because I think he launched 
and landed a recoverable rocket uh, today, which is pretty amazing uh, technical feat. Yeah, it used to be billionaires would uh, get wineries, and then they started to get islands. And then uh, now uh, the biggest fashion is to have your own space company. If you have you know over ten billion dollars and you want to you know you want to really kind of start plowing it into something exciting. Um, so Elon Musk started the trend with SpaceX and. I think Blue Origin beat them on this. So SpaceX has been kind of trying to do a more difficult version of this and land um, their reusable rocket on a floating uh, raft in the in the water. And they've had two failures on that. Uh, so Blue Origin kind of beat them to it today by launching a rocket. It went into uh, – it sent a payload into orbit, and then it came back down and landed on dirt uh, and, and – and they didn't disclose where that was. Usually it's Texas or, or something like that. Um, and that was pretty neat. So, And then Jeff Bezos joined Twitter today to let everyone know about it. So he was that excited. He decided to do his first tweet officially. So, so that was pretty neat. That, that was very cool. And you know, for those of you that aren't following Jeff, he's a great follow because he, he definitely doesn't gum up your Twitter feed. Yep. Yeah, he's kind of a quiet tweeter. Exactly. Uh, so anything else going on at Amazon on the e-commerce side of the fence? Two things I wanted to highlight. Uh, number one, they launched their their kind of week of Black Friday deals this week. Um, interesting, last year they did a month of Black Friday kind of starting November 1st. So so they actually pulled back a bit with the promotional launch this year and, and have done it in the third week of November. I've been seeing a lot of TV ads, which is interesting. They The first time I had seen non-Kindle TV ads other than the Swetterman back in 05, is when they did Prime Day and they had this kind of robot box guy. I don't know what his name is, but he's kind of, I'm sure you've seen him. He's a, a little man made of all Amazon smiley boxes. Um, they, I've seen several TV spots featuring him. They're really short and you kind of miss them if you're not looking at the TV, but uh, that's interesting to see him kind of running TV, which is a very un-Amazon-ish kind of thing to do. Some of the the best deals are, are going to be through the mobile app, which is interesting in Prime Now. Uh, and then the other thing that I've been watching real carefully uh, uh, as listeners probably already picked up on uh, you and I are both interested in the fulfillment center network uh, and I've been tracking that for three or four years and just having watched Amazon they have this pattern where which is which starts out normal, uh, kind of software where they'll test something and they'll test it in a city or in a product category or a country. Um, and then if it does well, they'll start scaling it into more cities, countries, product categories. And if it doesn't do well, like the Amazon Fire Phone, they'll kill it pretty quickly. Um, so uh, and then then that's all natural. But then the thing that's really strange, so, so step one is test, step two is scale. Then step three is open it up to anybody. And that's really weird in the world of retail because uh, think about Walmart. You know, Walmart doesn't scale their stores and then open them up to anybody. They don't scale their logistics and open it up. They don't scare their, scale their computing and opening it up. But those are all things that Amazon has done. Uh, so what, what's interesting is you start to think about and learn. So for example, we have a couple of sales reps in Chicago. And two years ago, they said, hey, Scott, did you know that Amazon is doing their own door-to-door deliveries? And I said, no, they're not. And they said, yeah, they are. I talked to the the delivery person and it was an Amazon employee and they in our zip code they decided it was made sense for them just to deliver packages. And I thought, wow, that's that's pretty interesting. So it wasn't UPS, FedEx or USPS or any of those guys. It was uh, an Amazon, you know, owned and operated employee and truck. Uh, so so we you know, I've been kind of speculating 
if you take that model of what they did with Amazon Web Services and FBA and whatnot, and you apply it to this logistics infrastructure they've built out, what, what does that mean? You know, and, and the, the punchline is, could someday, could I send a package on that Amazon logistics from coast to coast, just like I would FedEx and UPS? Now, what's interesting is we've been speculating about this for a while, and it's really started to pick up on Wall Street. So uh, one of my favorite Amazon analysts uh, is Colin Sebastian, and he's at Baird. And he's kind of picked up on a couple of interesting in- things. Um, this week, he picked up on there was a report out of Ohio that Amazon is working with an air cargo company. And they essentially now have four you know, very large jets. I think they're 767s flying between some of the main fulfillment centers. Now, this could be just load balancing or something like that in front of the holiday. But, you know, his speculation, and I I tend to agree with this, is that, you know, at at some point, I think we could see Amazon look at logistics as their next big business. If you think about really 30,000 foot level, the first business is retail. The second business is cloud computing via Amazon Web Services. Maybe the second business is Kindle. Um, I think it's kind of in there uh, or or a a third kind of business. So um, Jeff Bezos has said, publicly, they're looking for their next multi-billion dollar business. So when you look at it and you kind of think about it, uh, it's about a $400 billion opportunity to kind of take over logistics from a FedEx and UPS and compete with those guys. So so I thought it was interesting this week to kind of, uh, you know, during the holiday, at least there there's more speculation and more evidence that they're up to something in that regard. Yeah. And I mean, when you think about it, it makes total sense that you, just another way to leverage those big assets that they had to invest in. And I mean, in my mind, even the the food delivery, the restaurant delivery that they're piloting in a few markets is sort of along those same lines that they're they're leveraging that same delivery network that they built for Prime now and saying, what else can those guys deliver to get better utilization out of that that asset? Yeah, it was funny. The um the day someone realized they were doing it, they, I don't think Amazon even officially announced it. Someone just kind of saw it on the site. Grubhub was down like 40% that day. I don't know if you saw that. I did. This this whole thing reminds me of a, a funny anecdote. When Google Plus first launched, there was a, a senior manager at Google that you know wrote a long rant that he intended to publish internally to Google-only employees on Google+. And ironically, he wasn't able to figure out the privacy model on Google Plus in the the post accidentally went public, but one of the big the one of the big points of the post was that man Google we do a lot of things right, but you know in some areas our competitors are way ahead of us, and Amazon's drive to open up all these tools that they build and publish good APIs and productize all of their infrastructure, um, you know he he was highlighting as as a an area of frustration that Google wasn't doing more in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. So sort of uh, fun stuff. I think we have a couple minutes left. I, I, I know there's a few news items that I, th- I thought might be worth touching on briefly. Uh, one, uh, a friend of both of ours, uh, Peter Shelton, who is a senior analyst at Forrester, uh, looks like he's leaving Forrester to take over the chief strategy role for Magento. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that interesting because obviously Peter knows the the commerce platform space extremely well. Uh, he's he's literally run the the wave report on platforms that that Forrester does, and so you know for him to make a personal bet with his career in Magento now that they've spun off from eBay seems like a pretty good vote of confidence for Magento too. Yeah, yeah, we've we've seen. You know, through this, through the eBay split and everything, and um, just the ascendancy of the the hosted platforms, of Big Commerce and Shopify, 
uh, we've just seen kind of a Magento take kind of a lose a lot of momentum. So it'll be interesting to see if both um, some new blood and, and new ownership in Magento two really accelerates that and gets them focused back on on making customers happy. Exactly. That's the perfect kind of thing, by the way, for the Google trends we talked about earlier. You can you can go to Google and you can look at like what's the trend for Magento versus Shopify, and you'll see that globally. Magento is still more popular than Shopify, but if you limit the trend to North America, you'll you'll see perfectly what's happened. That essentially Magento used to be the have the dominant mind share, and uh, Magento was very lesser known. And they've they've completely flip flopped to the point where where Shopify is much more popular on Google in the U.S. than Magento is. Another uh, cool piece of news is that Sonia uh, Chawla from from uh, Walgreens uh, just left Walgreens to become the COO at Kohl's. And the reason I like that news is I'm really encouraged to see more of these digital leaders move into the C-suite for major retailers. And so, you know, a little over a year ago, I think Art Peck, who was the the president of digital at Gap, got promoted to the CEO. Now Sonia is going to become the COO at Kohl's. And they very publicly said that she's one of two people, you know, in, in line for the succession plan for the CEO of Kohl's. So it's, you know, we're certainly starting to see the the digital leaders move into those those top slots, which is encouraging. I think that makes a ton of sense because that's where, you know, every retailer I look at, that's where the growth is. So, um, you know, you want to put your strongest people that understand that part of the business there. And, um, it'll be interesting to see if this kind of, like we talked about last episode, if, if this heralds more integration between online and, and, and the stores as well. Absolutely. And a couple of things I saw, I always keep an eye on who's raising money out there. Um, one that's pretty exciting is Dollar Shave Club. Uh, I remember when I first saw the viral video, everyone thought it was was great, and and but then no one thought the business model would work, and they're you know kind of subscription razor blades. Um, and I saw that they have they they did a Series D in June, and it just came out that they've topped that off with another ten or twenty five, and on top of the seventy five they've already done. The other thing I think that was pretty newsworthy is this was all done at a six hundred and thirty million dollar pre money valuation, which is which is pretty darn impressive. Another thing I found is their 2014 revenues were were evidently 65 million, uh, but that represented 300 percent growth from the previous year. And if you kind of think, all right, maybe they at least continued to double or, or or get around there, that kind of puts them at 150 to 200 in 2015, which is pretty impressive. I saw another stat that said they've they're starting to get to kind of high single digits penetration into the the razor blade market, which is actually quite disruptive. So let's say it's 8%. Um, that can be quite disruptive for the, the Gillettes and, and other players of the world. And, and they're starting to kind of get on their radar and, and cause them discomfort, which is which is neat at the brand level. You know, we, We've seen that happen in e-commerce, but it doesn't happen all the time at the brand level. Uh, the other one I saw is somewhat of a unicorn alert. So uh, a unicorn kind of thing is this Silicon Valley-ism that when a company gets to a billion dollar pre-money valuation uh, or post-money uh, and Jet, the new market Marketplace uh, just announced today over on Recode uh, through Jason um, that it's raised another $350 million, and this time at a billion dollar pre. Uh, and they also announced that they hit a $33 million revenue run rate in October, or I guess that's GMV, uh, and that they're going to be on about a $500 million GMV run rate by end of year. And that's after kind of starting in you know, kind of October-ish was when they really started launching. So that's pretty impressive to to get up to that level of, of run rate uh, so quickly. Yeah, it is interesting. I've sort of seen the jet news spin both ways, though. I've seen, you know, people talk about 
it being an encouraging sign because they are were able to raise so much money at a, a a pretty attractive valuation. But you know, I've also seen people propose that it's concerning that that the other thing they've scaled really fast is their burn rate, um, and that they essentially had to raise that money by the end of the year to sustain operations. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Wall Street Journal had their spin on it was you know jets down to like their last you know, 30 million or something and, and on fumes. So it's hard to say who's right in these things. Some, sure. Sometimes, you know, people like to read articles that make it seem a little bit more dramatic than it maybe is. Yep. And I have to believe that those uh, investors understood the the cash flow situation that Jet was in and still felt it was a good investment. Yeah. I don't know if everyone realizes, but you know, what, what's interesting about Jet to me is behind the background, uh, Amazon is just scaring the bejeebers out of everybody. And, um, two of the backers of Jet are Google and Alibaba that does public information. So, you know, I, I think that. I actually don't worry about that team being able to raise money because I think as long as, as they can continue to throw, you know, some, uh, shade towards Amazon and, and, and whatnot, I think they'll continue to be backed by Google and Alibaba who would, would very much like to see someone challenge the, the dominance that Amazon has. Absolutely. And I, I certainly think it's good for the whole industry to have some healthy competition out there. So I'm certainly encouraged to, to see them, uh, giving it a full-throated effort. Um, well, listen, Scott, our, our time has flown by. We're, this is probably going to be our longest episode to date, but hopefully all the listeners found it valuable. And if you did, the big favor we'd love to ask is for you to both write us a review on iTunes and also tell a friend. Yep, everyone have a great Thanksgiving, safe travels, and what better thing to do than to catch up on our old episodes while you're traveling. Have a great Thanksgiving, Jason. Absolutely, Scott. You have a great Thanksgiving as well. Happy Cyber 5, everyone, and uh, shop victoriously. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 